continuing study in the Gospels. We will pick up where we left off last week in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, the end of the chapter. We have left the Samaritan village. We have talked to the woman, Jesus that is, and he has come back into Cana, Galilee, and last week we spent the whole time considering the verse, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And we consider the parallel section in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus was almost killed by his townsmen for offending them by identifying himself with the highest prophetic tradition. Now we'll pick up after that the story of the healing of the nobleman's son, which I will read again. We read it last week, but I will read it again. And there was a certain nobleman, and that word is better translated royal official, that is, he worked for the king. King is actually not a king, but a tetrarch. He was a petty chieftain, you might say, who was allowed to rule by the Romans in this part of Palestine, that is Galilee, I think just Galilee. That was Herod Antipas, the same one who put John the Baptist to death and who later ordered Jesus to walk across a swimming pool or something like that. Uh, he is the king who is referred to here and it is his a worker for him who is uh, mentioned. Whose son was sick at Capernaum. And Jesus is not at Capernaum, although he has spent time there, or is going to. It's not clear. The chronology is often not clear. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now I want to take up this story particularly because there are some very revealing parts to it. We considered several weeks, maybe months back now, I forget exactly when, um, another healing miracle in which the story of the palsied man who came in on his bed down through the roof, if you recall, the roof was taken off so he could come in. And we saw in connection with the account of that that um, Jesus identified healing with the forgiveness of sins, which if we understand the law of karma, we know that that means that if a bodily illness is due to karma, which we understand is the case ordinarily, uh, then the way to heal it is to remove the 
karma that caused it. In other words, to forgive the sins, which is exactly what Jesus did. In that instance, it was very specifically stated. He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, therefore take up thy bed and walk. This story is somewhat different, and there are certain things of it that I want to call to your attention particularly. The first one is that Jesus does not want to do it. Verse 48, when Jesus says, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. That is not a positive affirmation of the value of seeing signs and wonders. Um, It is true that Paramahansa Yogananda put this verse on the title page of his book. It's seemingly as a a, uh, lead-in to a book which did indeed include many signs and wonders. Uh, but that is not the sense of it. The sense of it is that Jesus is very unhappy at the misunderstanding of his mission. This is understood by all scholars and people who have gone into the Greek, um, that he is here complaining about having to do miracles, that people's faith seems to be depending on whether or not they see him do any miracles. He does not want to do it. Um, the nobleman says to him, begs him to do it, and Jesus replies, go away, is what he pretty much says, go thy way, meaning go away, your son lives. In other words, your son will be all right. In the Aramaic language which Jesus was speaking, there was no word that meant recover, as distinguished from, from live. There was no way to say, get well. Uh, there was only a way to say, is well. And live covered both grounds as well as uh, the other meanings that it had. So what he's saying is, go away, your son's going to be all right. And the man believed him and he went away. Now, it doesn't say anywhere, um, there's no indication given of any specific healing that Jesus did at this point. Uh, It may well be that the miracle comes from superior knowledge rather than from anything that Jesus did. In other words, he may have been aware that the son's illness was ending at that point. There is certainly no indication of anything else except at the, at the conclusion that the author obviously draws. But he does not state there is no um, record of any exertion, in other words. And this is an important point because um, of the attitude of the modern masters toward healing. If we are to understand that fully and to match it up with what's in the Gospels, uh, there are several things to be grasped. But one of them is um, this particular aspect of it. That is to say that um, Master Kripal Singh used to always point out the difference between trying to heal somebody and having somebody healed just by virtue of your radiation, you might say. There are other incidents in the Gospels, one of which where the woman touched the hem of his garment in the crowd and was healed. Uh, entirely without any volition whatsoever on the part of Jesus. And the Master was saying that in such healings, the person involved is so holy that he has no... the power is going from him in such a way that he is not controlling it. And whoever gets in the way of it, you might say, gets benefit. Um, And he would draw a careful distinction between that and between exerting. And there is no record of any type of exertion here at all. So whether or not the miracle consisted of um, 
anything that he did or whether it consisted of only the fact that he knew that the son was getting well and could reassure the nobleman or the royal official of that. Uh, the fact is that he did not apparently do anything outwardly that anyone could say was healing and also that he did not want to do it. Although he did answer the request, he did not want to do it. He put the request down, even though the royal official was very much concerned for his son. Still, his response was, we, we might say it was a rather cold one. Uh, the person is coming and begging him to heal his son, and the master is responding with a general put-down of miracles. Uh, all of this, however, makes sense if we see it in the context of the teaching on healing and the facts, the practice of healing by the masters down through the ages, which this account fits perfectly into. When we first come across the path, we read the writings of the masters and we find that they don't like miracles. Samhain Singh especially, if we read his letters in the book Spiritual Gems or in the other letters that are are, have been printed in Santani magazine and will continue to be printed there, we find that there is section after section in which he flatly states that masters don't do miracles, that miracles are entangling traps, that it's bad for people to have them done, it's bad to want them done, and it's bad for people to do them, that it is a waste of power and a, and a misdirection of power which could best go into purely spiritual undertaking that it is best to undergo one's karma and not to be wanting something different, something that we have reaped but we don't want to reap. As Master Kapal once quoted, I think it was Turgenev, who said, every prayer reduces itself to this, great God grant that two and two not be four. And there is a great deal of, of uh, when people request a miracle, this is of course what they are asking. Now, the Masters are very strong on this point. Both Samhain Singh, Kripal Singh, and Ajayb Singh, as well as all the other Masters, whose writings we have access to, have very specifically put down miracles and healing. They have ordered, absolutely ordered, their disciples not to do them or to heal anyone, even if they have the ability. And therefore, um, it's kind of sometimes maybe even a little embarrassing for satsangis to go back to the Gospels and read all these accounts of healing and healing and healing. And it seems as though that Jesus is there to do that. This is what he seems to be his main reason on earth almost, if we read certain pages of the Gospels. Uh, only a few indications like that phrase, except ye see signs and wonders you will not believe, uh, indicate otherwise. Well, this is all kind of misleading. The masters don't like miracles. Jesus didn't like them, and the modern masters don't like them. Just as Jesus did them, so do the modern masters do them. And uh, I'll explain the, the difference in the way it seems in a moment. This is from a book which was written by a disciple of Samhain Singh. The book is uh, of uneven value. Much of it is, is a word-for-word -word account, or supposedly a word-for-word -word, um, recreation of long conversations of Samhain Singh, which were in fact put down many years after the event from very scratchy notes. 
and therefore it is subject to um, a lot of grains of salt. However, this particular, also the author's opinion, often intrudes. There's not a book that I necessarily recommend. But this section is, is an eyewitness account. Uh, someone is telling a story of something that happened to him, the author of the book actually, and therefore is reasonably authentic. He says, the great master, that is Sawan Singh, someone has asked him to tell him an instance of a miracle in which the master is performed. And after explaining that masters don't like miracles, he has given a few instances of his own personal knowledge and culminating in this one. The great master was once returning from his farm at Sikandapur to Sirsa, from where he was to entrain for Bayas. The farm was near Sirsa. The song, the well-known song, Come, Let's Go to Sirsa, that Master Kapal wrote, refers, of course, to this song, actually in a village called Sikandapur. And this farm is on the main road to Rajasthan, and the satsangis do pass it um, whenever we go to Sanchi's ashram. From a distance, we can see it still. From where he was to entrain for Bayas. He was on horseback. And me and Shadi, the Mohammedan disciple of the great master, Myself and a couple of other satsangis were following him on foot. Very venomous snakes abound in that district, and as there were no regular roads in those days, we were passing through cultivated fields. Suddenly, Shadi cried that a viper had bitten him. The reptile was still there, and we killed it. The viper is said to be as deadly as the black cobra, its poison affecting the victim instantly. There is a saying among the people of that place that a viper says to its victim, Do not fall upon me, fall on the other side. Shadi's color changed immediately. He was unable to walk. I started towards the great master, who was a few yards ahead, to tell him of the mishap, but Shadi cried in anguish, Please don't. I must. Why shouldn't I? I said. Where's the harm? Is this the only gift that I can make to my lord? Shadi said. I do not want to present him with a snake's venom. I strongly disagreed with him, but he appealed to me so pathetically that I could not act against his wish. He fell down senseless, perhaps dead. We were left behind at a considerable distance, but the great master suddenly looked back, and seeing that we were in an agitated state, he turned his horse and came back to where we were standing around Shadi's body. He was very sorry to learn what had happened, and asked us to try to put Shadi on the back of a horse so he could be taken to Sirsa Hospital, but it was found impracticable. Shadi could not remain on horseback even with the support of two of us, so he spread a sheet on the ground and laid him down on it. The great master said that if a neem tree could be found somewhere near, its leaves were said to be very effective in removing snake poison. But there was no tree of any kind in sight. Seeing a small shrub standing at some distance, the great master sent a man to bring a branch of it. Waving this branch around the place of the wound, he said, I have heard that passes like this, made by a shrub branch, remove the poison. (laughs) But we all knew what was removing the poison. After about ten minutes, Shadi came to his senses, or, I would rather say, was brought back to life because he was practically dead. His body had turned black from head to foot, and one bitten by a viper was seldom known to have survived. Shadi, a few minutes after his recovery, when he came to realize what had happened, began to weep bitterly and said, My Lord, why have you taken the dark load of my heavy sins on your head? A dirty worm like me was not fit for this grace. Then he asked me, Why did you tell my beloved Lord? You should not have done that. Better than I had been crushed than my lovely rose suffer any inconvenience. I did not tell him, Shadi, I replied. 
You should have let me die rather than cause my lord this trouble, he said. The great master enjoined upon us not to talk about it any more. Shadi was a Mohammedan by birth who, ignoring all the anger and criticism of his relatives and co-religionists, had boldly adopted as his master a Hindu who was an infidel or kafir in the eyes of his kinsmen. He did not marry but spent his whole life in the service of his master. Now that is just one account, a very moving one, and of course the attitude of Shadi is a very exemplary one also. He understands, as these people dealing with Jesus did not, that whatever karma is removed by the master for a healing to take place goes onto his body. That is why he did not want the master to be told and why he preferred to die. He also had a, a sense of the fact that if he died, he would not be any worse off than he was on the physical plane, which uh, is not always that easy to come by, that particular sense. So in those ways, he was uh, perhaps far more in the know of things than most of the people who are coming to Jesus in the gospel. But the actions of the master were not that different. While he did not want to take any credit for the healing and put it down, nonetheless, the fact was that he did it. And there are a number of incidents like that told of silencing. And, as far as Master Kripal goes, there was a book published in India shortly after Master left the body. 1975, called The Ocean of Grace Divine. Some of you may have read it. Again, it's a book of very uneven value. It's written by many, many people. And it gives their impressions of the Master. Uh, and the amazing thing about that book is that if you read it through, there is hardly a page in that book that does not contain an account of a miracle. Not a page. Article after article. One of them is called How Master Saved My Son. Another one tells how Master got somebody to pass an exam, uh, miraculously. Another one tells how how uh, a maid was brought to her house in time to clean the house so that Master could come there, miraculously. And it really is an impressive story, by the way. It's not it's not the way it sounds when you talk about it. But there is nothing. If you read that book, now that book was written after Master left the body by people who had been around him to a greater or lesser extent. It is full of, of conversations of his put down by other people with no way to check uh, the accuracy of it. And it is, of course, written from their point of view. In other words, they their interpretation of the events is the one that comes across on the pages. That's also true of this book. And it's also true, I may point out, of the Gospels. This is exactly how the Gospels were written. It's exactly what they consist of. It's precisely this type of record. Now, we know what the teachings of the Master, that is, we're supposed to know what the teachings of the Masters is all about. I would not make the claim that any of us know it, but we're supposed to know it. There's no excuse for us not to know it in any event. Um, the Masters are written book upon book in recent years. There's plenty of stuff available in English. There are tons of tapes. Their talks have been transcribed and put into writing. Thousands of letters. Over and over, the basic points have been given. But suppose... Now suppose a hundred years from now, after a catastrophe, um, all those books were lost and the only book that managed to surface was The Ocean of Grace Divine and that was all that anybody knew about Kripal Singh and his ministry. What on earth would one conclude? There's not, you couldn't conclude anything except that he was a miracle worker who came, who dealt with his people over and over again, healed them, told them, by the way, there are, there are stories exactly like this one in which... Um, 
person's son is sick. The master says, why didn't you tell me he's going to be okay? And like that. Then they go home and find that he was okay without having done anybody done anything. Uh, every possible variation on the healing theme or miraculous theme in general, including, like I said, examinations and so forth, are, are gone into over and over and over again. And uh, that is the situation in regard, and we should always remember when we study the Gospels that this is what we are dealing with, is this kind of record, a very different kind of thing than the, say, sitting down and reading um, a book that the Master wrote personally, or that was taken from a tape and transcribed carefully uh, by people who understand um, his speech, and things like that. Um, there is a vast difference between the two. So we should allow, this is how distortions get into the teachings, of course. This is how the esoteric side is lost. And this is how the um, emphasis gets put on the wrong place. And why people assume that because the masters say that they don't like miracles, um, that they never do them, on the one hand, and why they assume that... Uh, Jesus did only miracles. That was primarily what he came for. Because I have had enough experience to know that these miracle stories are undoubtedly all true. They're true about Master Kripal Singh. They're true about Master Salan Singh. And they're true about Jesus too. These things are very definitely part of the deal of being around a God-man. But they are not the main point. They're not what he wants people to emphasize. Master Kripal Singh is supposed to have said at one point, do I have a baby factory here or an employment office in reference to the fact that so many people requested him uh, for children and jobs? And this was, if you were around, this was one of the reasons he would not give prashad to people at the end of his life unless they brought their diaries with them filled out was because the giving of prashad was taken as a, as a blessing of this sort. That people in India, people would come only to get prashad and they would take it home and... Uh, they would consider that they had got something. And so the master, instead of just giving it to them for the asking, insisted that they show him their filled out diary. Indicate that they were making some effort on their own. Well, I want to deal with now an allied subject but actually quite different. But in the Gospels, again, it is not that different. And this is the casting out of demons, which there are... as takes up a great part of the Gospel record. And now reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice, saying, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God, that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion, sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told him, told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, that is, allowed him not, would not let him, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. This is my personal favorite of all the stories relating to the casting out of demons in the Gospels. And it's a very profound story, which I don't necessarily pretend to understand every aspect of it. First of all, it's important to realize that this is talking about a real thing. We're not here talking about schizophrenia or insanity or mental illness. Mental illness and insanity exist also, and so does uh, this kind of possession. Both of them existed in the old days, the time of the gospel, and both of them exist now. And in the old days, it is true, undoubtedly true, that people who were mentally ill, in one way or another, schizophrenic or whatever, were considered to be possessed of a demon. And it is also true today that people who are possessed of a demon are undoubtedly considered to be mentally ill, because neither uh, time, perhaps, pays sufficient attention to the possibility of the other. However, both exist, and uh, this is a real thing, and Jesus has not so much cast him out, but uh, made it impossible for him to stay. I want to read a section now from a discourse given by Santa Jeb Singh, the living master, when he was here in 1977. Is commenting on chastity, which is a subject we will be taking up in several weeks' time. Jesus teaching on that. And he says, quoting from Cherandas, whose hymn he has taken, a 19th century saint, he says, giving up all other things, one who worships Sheol, that is continence, and keeps his attention on the name of the Lord, he is praised in the world while living, and at the time of death he gets liberation. And Sanchi comments, Now Charandasji says that before even thinking about doing meditation, before starting it, you should have the element of continence and you should be very chaste. If you do, you will progress in your meditation by leaps and bounds. Only a few days before we came to this country, two incidents happened in which people who were controlled by ghosts or wandering souls came into our ashram. And as soon as they stepped into our ashram, the ghosts left them. The word ghost here is pret, P-R-E-T. 
and is not should not be understood as ghost in the sense of a disembodied spirit haunting a place, but rather in the sense of a wandering spirit which enters into other bodies. Uh, it is not, however, a demon. And the translation in the gospel, unclean spirit, is closer to the meaning of pret by far than the devil idea, which is which is how that is often rendered. As they stepped into our ashram, the ghosts left them. One was the niece of Patiji, and she had tried all sorts of medicine. They went to many people, but they were not able to get rid of her ghost. When they came to the ashram, the ghost left her, because whenever these souls come into the atmosphere where a pure soul is residing, they leave the person they are controlling. The other girl was from a village called Ten Arbi, and she had met one of our dear ones named Hariram in 64 Arbi. He is a satsangi. He told them you should go to 77 RB and see a Jabe Singh if you want to get rid of that ghost. He knew that not even the angel of death comes near a satsangi, so what is the question of a ghost coming near the master? When he told them to come to me and get initiation, they didn't believe, and they said, we have done many types of yantras and mantras, and we've gotten nothing. They were all useless. We don't want to go there. But they finally came, and as soon as that woman came near me, she started saying, now, don't give me any beating. Don't punish me, because now I am going away from this body. This is not a miracle. You should not think that this is a miracle. I am telling you about the advantage of keeping continence. If you will also keep continence, what I am talking about will become an ordinary thing for you. If anyone who is suffering from a ghost or an evil spirit comes near you and you are chased, that person will be free. So that is, I think the best possible comment on this particular section of the of the gospel that it is not so much when Jesus expelled unclean spirits it was not so much that he did anything but that uh, they couldn't help but go when he came into their presence and the emphasis on chastity perhaps may explain why it is that in the tradition of the Catholic Church priests have been able sometimes to expel spirits from people, whereas their counterparts in other uh, Western religions who do not usually practice chastity have not been able to. Um, an interesting side comment on that. The fact that Jesus did not tell this man to keep quiet about it is an indication that he also did not consider this as a miracle. The, uh, in other places, especially in the Gospel of Mark, for example, in the very next story, or one of the next stories, uh, he raises someone from the dead, supposedly, which uh, at least she appears to be dead, and perhaps she really is. He raises her from the dead, and they were astonished, with a great astonishment, it says. And then it says, and he charged them straightly, that is, strictly, that no man should know it commanded that something should be given her to eat. Over and over again, especially in Mark, which is the earliest of the Gospel and probably the most authentic in most cases, Jesus tells people not to tell anyone. Here he tells the man uh, to go tell them what the Lord has done for him, which I think is a good indication that just as Sanchi talked about the ghost leaving in a way that he would never talk about a physical healing, um, and was careful to emphasize that he was not speaking about anything miraculous, but about something that happens by itself according to the law of nature, um, which we do not as yet have full knowledge of, 
in the same way, uh, here Jesus does not mind if this particular story gets told about. Of course, the people were asked him to leave from their country. Um, from their point of view, uh, this was a very frightening incident. Of course, 2,000 swine um, were owned by some farmer, no doubt. From his point of view, they were his property. And they are now dead. And they are lost to him. And this must have represented a tremendous economic loss. And he is undoubtedly afraid to uh, demand his money from this very strange person who has caused this to happen. So it is small wonder that they were asked to leave. A lot of people have wondered why Jesus would do this, that is, put the um, spirits into the swine. And I think that the only explanation, there's really no explanation given. Um, it seems very destructive. 2,000 swine should die from the point of view of um, of one man's sanity being restored. Uh, there's there's no easy explanation. I think that it doesn't say how old the swine were. Uh, knowing why people raise swine, it is perhaps not a tremendous imaginative effort to grasp they might not have had very long to live anyway. Um, they may have been ready for slaughter very soon, and that from their point of view it hardly mattered. Also, we know that masters do whatever they take they pay for. If a master is responsible for the death of any lower animal, uh, they see to it that they get the human birth um, immediately in their next life. So that he allowed this to happen. It is not clear that it was anything volitional on his part. Even though the devils are represented as saying, send us into the swine, all it says as far as what Jesus did was he gave them leave. And once they left the man... Uh, seems logical that they went into the swine as the nearest thing that they were allowed to go into. <coughs> Did not do them any good. The upshot of it was that these particular unclean spirits were freed from anybody and therefore did not plague anybody in the future. Okay, we will take up the resurrection from the dead idea which occurs throughout the Gospels on two or three occasions there are, I think, three incidents of Jesus raising from the dead is tied in with the Jesus' own resurrection. We will consider it in connection with that sometime in the future. I do not want to do that right away because it's too early in the chronology. <coughs>